You are listening to the Regeneration Rising podcast, a podcast from the Kavira Coalition about the trials, tribulations, and triumphs of agrarians in the United States. Each episode will explore what it means to work in regenerative agriculture, how people came to choose this as their livelihood, and why it's important to them and the future. We hope to build a foundation for a strong community of future agrarians and land stewards with a regenerative approach to community, relationships, and the land. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Taylor Mulia. Today, I'm interviewing Caroline Caldwell. She is the Northern Plains Manager for the New Agrarian Program. She's a coworker of mine, and the reason I chose Caroline for an interview is because she has an absolutely fascinating um, history and journey in agriculture. She has traveled all over the world um, studying agriculture in extreme environments. She was a manager at Oxbow Cattle Company in Missoula, Montana, and now she's joining us at the New Agrarian Program and going on um, next year to New Zealand to fulfill a Fulbright scholarship. So just fascinating person overall. Um, One of the interesting parts of her job though right now is she is working with the American Farmland Trust on land transition and training folks to navigate that process. And I really wanted to sit down with her while we still had her um, to talk more about what the career paths are, which which career paths are available for new agrarians in ranching in the West. It seems like a lot of people think the most obvious way of ranching is to work on a ranch and eventually buy one, eventually own ranch land and run, run a ranch. And what we're finding increasingly is that's not necessarily a viable option for a lot of people and there are a lot of different ways to be quote unquote a rancher it could be part-time with a town job it could be working as a manager it could be doing a custom grazing operation so i love talking to caroline about this subject she brings so much wisdom and curiosity to land stewardship and i hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as i did thanks for tuning in Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. So first things first, where are you calling in from today? I am in Montana, central Montana. I'm at a Seabin Livestock Company. So like a 40 minute drive outside of Cascade, Montana. Wonderful. And I must add that you are in the most beautiful historic cabin. <laughs> Thank you. I love <laughs> it's it. A very huge bummer. Nobody is really a bummer. Nobody can see what where you're sitting right now but for just one second i want you to tell them what it's like where are you sitting well i'm in a wooden cabin a log cabin and there's a a bear and a badger and a bobcat hanging behind me and a giant four-poster bed and a lot of like cool old ranch artifacts on all the walls and the ceiling (laughs) (laughs) i love it you always tune into meetings and you look like you're in i don't know it's like a fake zoom background <laughs> yeah it's always great so let's let's start from the beginning tell us briefly about your background in agriculture where did you get your start and kind of give us a little timeline so i grew up in a pretty rural community in ohio and got started with horses pretty young was definitely like a horse girl circa kindergarten onwards and then got some goats and got some chickens and just kind of kept on learning about things that way, kind of trial and error. And then went to college and focused a lot on land conservation and kind of consuming farmland. And I went to college at Bates College in Maine. So kind of the, I feel like Maine does a really good job of that and having creative solutions to farmland and large landscape conservation. Loved that. And then During college, I went and worked at a pretty big ranch in Colorado, and I think that's where I got my the the cattle bug because I always had the horseback riding part. But then, you know, pairing it with the with getting to do things with a lot of cows instead of just one or two in the backyard, loved that. And then after graduation, I received a Watson Fellowship, and so that funded a little over a year of traveling to study ranching in remote places and extreme environments. And so that was my project. And so I went to Finland. I was north of the Arctic Circle working on a dairy farm 
for a couple months. And then I went to New Zealand for three months and worked on a sheep and beef and deer operation, which is really interesting to see deer being farmed for their antlers, which I had never seen before. But yeah, I did three months there and then hopped over to the Falkland Islands, which are a small British island chain off the tip of South America. <laughs> and so I was on a sheep station down there and we had, I don't know, I think it was like 12 or 13,000 head of sheep. So it was a lot of, yeah, just riding dirt bikes and herding sheep and it was shearing season and Christmas. So that was a fun time. And then I ended in Australia for six months. And so I did four months of station work, just strictly station work in the Northern Territory. And then I did two months of droving. So I moved about 1200 cows over like 200 miles to the stockyards to sell them. So yeah, I think it was kind of an alternative way to have those early years in ranching. And then I got back to the States and did a little blip of work with the Forest Service, did a little bit in Colorado again, and then was hired on full-time for the last four years with Oxbow Cattle Company outside Missoula, Montana, which I loved. Really, those were the four years where when I was kind of put everything to practice and honed a lot of skills that I'd been wanting to learn or had learned vaguely. And then caught up with Cuvira in January. And so here I am. <laughs> yeah, your story is insane. I love it. I always <laughs> love it. if you for anyone listening, we can't we don't have enough time. But if you ever see Caroline in person, ask her her crazy travel stories. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot Good. of yeah, crazy cows, crazy people in the best way possible. <laughs> That's great. So yeah, you're here at Kibera. You work for the No Agrarian Program. Can you tell us your position here and what do you do? So I am the Northern Plains Manager. So I manage the NAP programming up here. So I support the mentors and the apprentices, help to expand the program up here, and a lot of interaction with regenerative-minded people and a lot of network building, which has been really fun. I've been in this ranching community for, I guess, five years now. Um, and I've heard a lot of names of people doing like really cool stuff, but was often so busy ranching <laughs> that I couldn't go out and, and meet them and interact with them. I could just, you know, hear of the cool stuff that they're doing. So it's been really fun to yeah travel and see people and talk to people and just hear what they're doing. And, you know, within Montana, but also Kivira reaches further than where I live. So it's been fun to be a part of that network as well. There is an aspect to our jobs that is plugging into Kivira, and then there's an aspect of our jobs running this program, and then just being out in the world and seeing the apprentices. What is the most rewarding part of your job, would you say? I think probably getting to be like a support and sounding board for the apprentices. It's been such a treat because they're from all over the place and come from like really different neat backgrounds. And so it's been like a really cool experience to see regenerative ag through their eyes and where they want to take it. And so that's been really fun, especially in this portion of the season. They're all kind of starting to think about what they want to do next and what fits their values and their lifestyle and where they want to be and where their partners live right now. So I think that's been, yeah, really rewarding to see how the regenerative ag training is kind of taking their lives in certain directions that I would have never expected. And I don't think they would have either. Yeah. And on the other side of that, what, what would you say is the most challenging part of your job? I think conflict is always a bit of a challenge, no matter what the workspace is. But it's, I think when you're working with mentors and apprentices, they're together all the time. And it creates this really like deep and special bond. And because of that like constant interaction, there will of course be some bumps in the road. It's just human nature. And so I think that's been a challenge, but also such a reward as well, because yeah, it's, you always grow. Everyone grows through these conflicts and experiences. And I went through a lot of that myself as, you know, the only employee at Oxbow. So it's also been nice to be like, I've probably been through some variation of what they're going through. And yeah, I think that's been a good challenge to kind of see human natures, you know, sometimes at its best after you kind of work through the the trudge of not getting along. <laughs> what is a tip that you have for either apprentices or mentors or sort of the same dynamic on any ranch, an employer or an employee? What's one tip that you would have for them 
if they had conflict with their either like fellow employees or with each other? What's one strategy or tip that you found that helps you navigate through the conflict? Yeah. A big thing for me was like, make sure that you're not telling a story for them in your head. I think that's where conflict kind of goes off the rails is when you have this idea of why the other person's acting in a certain way, and then you expect certain outcomes based on what you imagine they're thinking. And so I think that's, you know, where conflict can kind of, when storylines diverge greatly, I think that it's hard to bridge that gap when it could have been something minute. Someone could have just been having a bad interaction with, you know, a cow that morning or something in their personal life was happening that, yeah, they're not ready to tell you. And maybe they're not going to necessarily tell you the full story. But I think always expect that you don't know the full story and be ready to like listen to the other side before you jump to conclusions or you know, make, make something a bigger issue than it is. I think that's kind of where, yeah, especially in those close relationships, you feel like you already know the full story because you're with this person all day and (laughs) share meals with them. But there's always going to be, there's usually something else, you know, that, that can contribute to, to conflict. So I think that's a big thing to like, just take a step back and be like, all right, I don't know. I don't know the full reasoning. And I want to get to the bottom of like why this person is acting this way. So just communicating that. Yeah. Speaking of, I'm really fascinated by the transition of young agrarians into agricultural and rural life. There are so many, I think it's so romantic to think that I'm going to go work on a ranch. And I think there's so much nuance in inserting a person who isn't from that background into that, first of all, into the landscape, second of all, into the culture of the entire, you know, of the entire West, then in their state, then their community, and then also integrating them into the culture of the family that they're staying with. And so I'm always curious, you know, you've had several experiences where you showed up at an operation and had to adapt. And then now you're seeing all these apprentices do the same thing and helping them work through it. What are some of the most common internal issues that an apprentices face or that you faced in your first few seasons of working on a ranch? So I think some examples that I can think of are like, wow, I really wasn't ready for working these long hours or wow, I really wasn't used to like not having cell service to call my friends or I wasn't used to having a smaller budget to work with each month. What, what do you see most often or what have you experienced? I think for a lot of young people or, you know, the first couple seasons, you're kind of diverging from your friend group. Like you were always a part of a cohort through high school and if you went to college through college or through, you know, the places where you grew up. And I think that ranching really pulls you away from that. And that I think was the biggest challenge because, you know, friends are still good friends, but are like, why, why are you working long hours? Why are you, why are you doing this (laughs) essentially? And it's hard to be like, I just love the land and I love cows, you know? So (laughs) I think that that was the, you know, lifestyle uh, versus showing up to work. I got it for myself. I understood the why of it all, but there is such, I just felt such a disconnect from friends and from, you know, sometimes family members who are kind of questioning, why are you doing something for so little money and doing a lot more work than what your college degree qualified you for or what some of your other passions are? And I, yeah, I think that was a really big struggle for me after the first season at Oxbow, kind of being like, oh, this could be you know, a multi-year and this will be a multi-year thing. And I just feel very alone, even though I'm in, it was near a big city, but when you only have, you know, an hour or so to hang out with people and then you might have to cancel on them. It's like, there's just a disconnect. So I think that like, for me, the, the big thing that changed it was like seeking out like-minded people who are nowhere locationally near me. I went to a woman in ranching circle after my first year and that's, those are still my best friends, you know? And I think that those two days, and even though some people are doing things that aren't relating to ranching anymore, I think just like having that connection and that community was something that I didn't realize I needed. Cause I was like, I've done a lot of things. I've traveled the world alone. I, you know, I've done a lot of things just on my own, but in terms of wanting to stay in a place the time that it takes to go to range days and go to grazing seminars and soil health conferences, open farm days, site visits, like all of that 
ends up being worth it. Even if you're like, I have to do extra work on Saturday or Sunday. And yeah, I think community is a support system. And so investing in that and investing in like creating your own and something that works for you and, and people that you, you know, feel like you can kind of peel back the walls of your heart a little bit for that's always worth it. And I, and I hope that people see that it's more than just, you know, going into town and having a beer. It's going into town and like talking to people. It's pretty important. I think there's this always balance of the why. Yes, I have a why that I'm here, but also I feel these things. <laughs> like the why doesn't cancel out the feeling of loneliness or the the feeling of kind of maybe jealousy of friends who are still have a cohort or still live in the city and live next to each other and can hang out all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it always helped me too to be like, I don't want the jobs that my friends have. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't yeah. I love that they love their jobs, but I don't want that, you know? Yeah. So I think just understanding that like the grass really isn't greener on the other side. And it's even on mm-hmm. the hard days of ranching, for me at least beat, you know, if I had to do a day or a week in an office, I would always rather be, you know, having my hands frozen off trying to fix a pro- frozen like pipeline. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Right. So part of your work with Kimbera, you've been working with American Farmland Trust and this super interesting program. There's people all over the nation, right, that are working on the same project. Yeah. So can you talk more about what you're doing that project? Yeah. So I'm a part of the transitioning land to a new generation cohort. So there's a pretty neat curriculum created by American Farmland Trust as a way to like have this baseline service for ag service providers working with transitioning land and like just how complex it is. There's a lot of financial and legal and like interpersonal issues involved. It's not just like a land transfer. There's so many nuances. And so AFT is trying to create this Yeah, kind of like teaching mechanism that is both like, this is a list of concrete things, but also here's how you navigate these nuances. And it's been really neat to hear from people, you know, in Georgia, how they're doing it. And we have people in Maine and people, you know, in the Midwest and Illinois. And it's been so eye-opening and exciting and kind of feeds back to all my, you know, work during college of there's way more creative ways to to keep working lands working than just put it, not just put it into your agriculture easement, but that's very binding and very like, it is this way forever. Whereas it's been so fun to hear how people are, are kind of working through different partnerships. Cause I think partnerships are kind of the only way that this will work in the future. Yeah. I think what's interesting, a lot of people talk about okay, there's older generation of landowners and farmers and ranchers, and there will be a great turnover. You know, like there'll be this great turnover of land and like, who's going to steward that land. And gosh, the more I learn, I'm like, wow, the nuance to that is wild. (laughs) Like, it's not just like, it seems very simplistic to say, like, we're just gonna transfer it to the next generation. Have you found that, that it was a lot more sort of messy than you thought it was going to be? Yeah, I think messy and and just different. Like, I think it's pretty, when I was in Maine, I did a kind of case study in Maine, case study in Maryland, and a case study in Ohio. And just even within those three states that are not incredibly far apart from each other, like their ways of transferring land were quite different. And it was like, yeah, I think that it's it's such a complex even if you're transferring it within the family. And so there's so many levels of early beginning farmer trying to get land has its whole bag of worms. And then the family just trying to pass it off within the family is another complex issue. And then there's, you know, in the South, there's people and everywhere there's the handshake deals that have been going on for many generations. Like, Oh, well, what's the legality of that? <laughs> like when there's no, no paperwork involved. And so then navigating that is just, yeah, it's a, it's a lot, but it's exciting that there is this overarching kind of curriculum, but then the expectation of regionally each place will do what works for them. And I think that that's, you know, going back to community, it's, it's what works for that area, what works for that community, what works for those people will be how land can be transferred. For many young agrarians, new agrarians, I suppose, doesn't matter the age who aren't inheriting farmland or wealth, what options 
are on the table for them to work in regenerative farming or ranching in your eyes? I think that to jump in, like apprenticeships and internships, you know, like the new agrarian program (laughs) are pretty important to like get your feet wet with guidance and oversight. It's you just have to be a sponge and working somewhere that's willing to teach you and finding that kind of mentorship. No matter if it's, you know, this official structure, new agrarian program mentorship or the farmer down the road that you've always kind of looked up to and are like, hey, I'm going to have another full time job. But can I help you on Saturdays? You know, just like each of those little bits kind of piece together to learn some pretty important things. And then, you know, alternative routes like guest ranches, you know, like you can, you can kind of get your feet wet with that and make a little money in the summertime. And I think there's, there's no wrong way to do it. I think one big thing is maybe not to the extreme that I did of going all over the world, but I think going to different regions of the U.S. and seeing the ingenuity in agriculture is really neat and really helps shape how you want to run and manage things. And there's, yeah, there's going to be a bunch of different learning opportunities, but if you have the chance, go to the South, go to the Northeast, go to the Pacific Northwest and the Southwest. And and I think that finding those connections and learning those different skills, I feel like I've learned, you know, a hundred ways to do one thing which makes my way that I choose on a Wednesday morning, you know, fit to what I need it to do. (laughs) Yeah. So I think that's if you're just wanting to jump in and learn the skills, then if you have the skills, there's different options if you want to own or join an LLC or cooperative and like, don't underestimate the power of USDA and all of the acronyms that are involved. There's some good acronyms. (laughs) that can help you out. Um, There's, you know, I just found one that's a farm service agency has an individual development account for lower income beginning farmers that literally matches your deposits to spend on things like farmland or assets. And so I think there's, you know, there is support out there just trying to navigate that. And then you can lease to own, you can have a land contract where, you know, you're paying the farmer a rancher towards purchase. You can have a right lease with right to first refusal. And then if you don't even want to own it ever, there's like short-term and long-term leases and ground leases where you don't own the ground, but you own the structures and, you know, crop and livestock shares with the owner. So you're sharing that risk and the benefit. And then in urban areas, you can lease like pre-approved city lots. And I think the thing that I'm finding myself quite passionate about is just being a manager for landowners. And so I think that is where, again, that partnership is going to come in because if you can find a person who has enough money to buy a multi-million dollar ranch, it probably means they made money elsewhere. <laughs> and so they might not have the skills to manage their land, but they care about it. They care enough to spend millions of dollars on it. And so they'll probably care enough to spend money on a manager who is regenerative minded. And at some point that could turn into a lease or at least, you know, custom grazing and running your cattle on that land. And And so I think there's we're kind of entering this era of creativity that, you know, the world's kind of your oyster in terms of where where the possibilities are for taking this. It's not just, you know, take out a mortgage and pay the bank for 50 years, then you own it for five years, then you pass away. <laughs> so it's it's overwhelming, but exciting time for getting into regenerative agriculture and kind of showing its merits. I think that people are starting to see that it's It's a pretty big deal and it does some amazing things. Apprentices come to us a lot of times and we ask them, what do you want in the, in 10 years? Like what, Mm -hmm. where do you see yourself? What is your goal? And a lot of people say they want to have a ranch. Mm -hmm. A lot of people say that. And I, and so I do the whole kind of like, (laughs) this sort of like Willy Wonka, like, like, you know, knuckles under my chin. I'm like, Oh, okay. So you want to own a ranch? What are you going to, how are you going to do that? (laughs) Or, you know, it's just, it's so complicated. I think there's so, like I said, romantic notions and what does it, what does it mean to want to own a ranch? Like, do you want to own real estate? Do you want to invest in real estate? Do you want to make your money elsewhere and pay for that? Or do you want to do the work? Like what is more important to you and what values do you have? Does it matter if you own it? Like, do you feel like you will ultimately not be satisfied until you own it? Or, you know, so have you guys had those conversations? You probably talked to a lot of other managers and owners of ranches up in Montana. What's that question like? Are people still, it, does ownership 
feel like a better path or is ranch management seem like a more viable path for people not inheriting wealth? Yeah, I think it's I think it tends to be a combo. Like a lot of people own a few to a few hundred acres and then lease, you know, a lot of land or just have leases or have all of their own cattle or run someone else's cattle. So I think that yeah, ownership even with people who own ranches tend to lease a lot of land too. And so I think that the magic is in finding a lease that's either been, you know, run pretty hard and run down and no one wants. And then that's like, oh, that's stewardship to a high degree, taking something from a low stocking capacity to a higher stocking capacity, and then making sure that, you know, the lease is long enough where you can reap the rewards and you won't have to leave in in 10 years. I think that not having something taken away out from under you is kind of one of the reasons that people want to own the land. But you know, a lot of good things can come from contracts and involving Mm -hmm. and always involve a lawyer, of course. But yeah, again, like communication and networking go a really long way in terms of like, if you, if your goal is to steward land, you can affect more than what you could possibly buy. So I'd say go for, you know, go for leasing. And if your goal is to own land, then have that town job, have that nine to five, and then, you know, be able to pay off that land. So it all comes back to kind of there aren't bad values. There's just a lot of different values. And so, so especially with apprentices being like, what, where are your values residing now? Where do you think they'll reside in 10 years? And, and, you know, land ownership is the rest of your life kind of thing. So if it, if you feel like it's only going to fit for 10 of those years, then maybe there are other options, but if it's going to fit for a long time, you're going back to your family farm you know, in Iowa or something, then that changes things. So I think kind of like looking inside yourself and seeing your values and what brings you joy and what work is worth it for that. And then going out and seeing, you know, oh, do I want to have a herd of cows or just have land and have someone else run their cows on my land? Kind of see what that combo is after the the soul searching, I guess. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know, I I feel a sense in our generation of lack of commitment. (laughs) I don't know if that's just like me and my friends and the people that I know, but I think that our generation really values, I guess it feels like we're not having kids as much as our previous generations. And we're not necessarily like putting a whole lot of value on marriage or settling down and, and making those investments. And so to me, it seems like evaluating your freedom and like, do you like to travel? Do you want that time off? Do you want to, or, you know, owning land too is like, do you think that, do you feel like you are capable of doing the fixes on this land? Because if something, if water infrastructure breaks, if you need those things fixed, like that's going to be on you. And as a manager, there are more resources to draw from. Yeah. So or just drought, to you know, that's a big mm-hmm. thing too. Buy a lot of land and it never rains. So <laughs> you can't manage for grass that doesn't even have a shot at growing. Right. <laughs> Right. Unless you're going to invest in yeah irrigation, if that's even an option. So, yeah, I think it. I think culturally, you know, some people really still want to settle down and have those values, and other people, yeah, there's a lot of movement because we are kind of in the generation that could and could move around and could have all these new experiences. So maybe it'll come, yeah, a little later in life. Maybe we'll all be fifty and be like, oh my gosh. We need our five acres of land <laughs> to grow our garden or, you know, 500 to have our cows. But yeah, for now, though, I think there's a lot of cool options, but it does take, you know, budgeting and planning and evaluating and, and making a goal, you know, making a timeline for what you want to achieve when, even if it doesn't end up happening, just writing goals down and, and seeing them on paper shift the way you think about life. So I, I think I highly encourage that as well. Hmm. Yeah. I think there are many, I think holistic management international, I think they have some sort of holistic decision-making frameworks on their website. And even just for like personal decisions too. our very own Julie Sullivan is the master, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but 100%. you can find, <laughs> but you can find stuff online too. And making, um, looking at your, at your life, like you're looking at your ranch, like holistic management applies to you too. So I think another question is, is, is this even right for you? Like is agricultural production and that 
ownership and that responsibility and commitment, is that right for you? You know, like that's, that's even a question to even start with. Yeah. Cause there's so many neat things to do in feeding communities and feeding the world and, and making sure people get, you know, nutrition. I think everyone has to eat and it all comes back to like everyone you have to eat every day. And so I think there's a lot of major value in having those other positions too. And it's, you know, there's way more things to do than just raise, not just raise animals, but I think there's a lot of beauty in these other jobs that are keeping our world running and keeping food justice and, and, you know, kind of trying to figure out where the food deserts are and how to get food to them. So land stewardship is awesome and amazing. And I think it touches your soul, but there's a lot of other things that might touch your soul and in other ways, um, on the human side or, you know, wildlife conservation. And, and if you're into water, there's so much to do with water restoration and habitat restoration. And, and again, yeah, I think that not getting into that box of like, this is what I need to do. If there's other things that interest you, like you're going to make a big difference if you're passionate about this. So yeah, finding where it kind of feeds your soul right now. Mm. Right. And it's, I think as a young person too, it's important to remind yourself that what you're doing now is not what you're going to do forever. Like you can, you can have fun and enjoy and learn and dive deep into something. And maybe ranching will be more, will make sense a little more after that, you know, maybe get some money in the bank and then go back to ranching for a season and see if maybe that's the right step at this point. But, and you know, maybe if you're like, Oh, right now, I feel like I could never be a, a ranch manager, but who knows, maybe in five years, you feel like you will be, you know, maybe you've matured a little bit, you've gotten your feet under you and you feel like you could. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's so true of just takes time and seasons. Like you can't see all the wrecks in one season. <laughs> you've got to, you got to go through it a few times to see like the insanity that can come out of, you know, working with cattle and working with land. So yeah, I think seeing seeing a few disasters strike and picking up the mess is very important. <laughs> I am so interested in your management career and you were at Oxbow for four years? Yes, four years. Four years. Do you have any resources that you would recommend to help people become a successful manager? Like, or, or maybe even not resources, even, even just a mindset mm-hmm. or things to consider to make yourself a really strong manager? Yeah. I mean, I think that when I got my beginning in ranching, I think I didn't have cell service or internet for a lot of the time. And so it was like specifically human to human interaction. (laughs) I think that no matter how much access you have to the internet, like just asking people and talking to people and like, I talked to my boss every day and just pick his brain or her brain and ask so many questions because there's a lot of things that are told to you that are, you know, ideals or ideas about grazing and what you can do and what you should do and what you shouldn't do. But until you're like in that field and you either overgrazed it on accident or you took the cows out too early, like discussing that and discussing, you know, how your grazing plan went that year and how you're going to change it next year. The, the situational conversations are really important. But, you know, now that I'm in the world of technology, I think YouTube videos and books and podcasts and conferences, all of that, the world is your oyster. And I think don't get too hard on yourself if you're just, especially when you're in the thick of it, if you're just too tired (laughs) to read the books. I remember I would just beat up on myself because I had four books about grazing on my bedside table and I would read a paragraph a week. I think that like, don't undervalue how much you're learning at the time, just doing the work. Even if you feel like you're doing the same thing every day, like you're still learning because even if you're, you know, moving your cows twice a day, you're looking at that land, you're looking at those cows, you're looking at how it's going to come back, you know, if it's irrigated in the next month, if it's not, you know, in the next year. So yeah, I think if you're in the thicker ranching, value that. And if you're in off time, look back on what your big questions were and write down those big questions during the the work season, if you're seasonal or, you know, in the winter time when you're doing a little bit less and then go and search out those books and podcasts and go to those conferences, but kind of honor that process that you're learning a lot 
when your boots on the ground working. And I think that's, yeah, the biggest, biggest things that I'd learned. Something that I'm noticing is that you, you're saying, be patient with your learning, understand that you're learning. And also I, I would add, communicate that you, we are all learners, you know, like if you're a manager with an owner or with your employees, I think it's important to create that culture. And every, every good farmer or rancher I've ever worked for has created that culture, that baseline of like, guys, we're all learning. Yeah. You know, just like walk in here with your fancy boots and you think, and you're just like going to fix everything for the owner and just like, and, and promise more than you can provide. And so I think it's really important to set that baseline and create that culture and make space for that. And it makes space for yourself. It makes space for the owner and it makes space for anyone else on the ranch too. Yeah. I think if you're trying new things, you're going to mess it up. You have to go too little or too much to find the sweet spot and the sweet spot on each, on each ranch. Well, I had, a, I had another question for you is like, okay. <laughs> what, what personality traits do you think are best for people who are going to be in a manager position on a ranch? Mm. I think taking responsibility is the biggest. Like you can't blame cows. You can't blame the weather. You can't blame your coworkers. Just being like, yeah, I messed up and it's okay. Like take mm -hmm. responsibility and be humble about it and then just move on. I think that's the big thing is like chances are things are still going poorly. <laughs> so you have to just <laughs> like the adaptability of be like, all right, I messed up. How do we solve this? I think having that like problem solving kind of mindset of like, yeah, it's on me, but also I'm not going to like wallow in it. I think that that's huge to be like, yeah, I messed up and it's okay. I think that combination and then like, how are we going to fix it? And humor. I think that just having an ability to just breathe and laugh, you know, even mm -hmm. if it's the biggest mess. I remember, you know, there'd be some days where I'd be on mile 15 hiking, looking for cows and be like, well, this is my life. <laughs> As it is. <laughs> and they're like, you know, 10 miles in the opposite yeah, direction. They're gone. You, know? you can't even, you can't find them for two days and they <laughs> pop out in someone else's backyard, like downtown. So, you know, there are just so many things that like you have to expect that things are going to get ridiculous at some point or else you're not like pushing the envelope. You know, mm -hmm. if you're going to graze in areas that abut wilderness, like you might have cow breakout, but it's, you're grazing in places where like, cattle haven't been grazed before. So you're doing good things for the land. So I think that, yeah, always just being able to be like, you know what? I'm trying. <laughs> right. Right. This is big. Great. So kind of going back to your study in American Farmland Trust and learning more about sort of the landscape of like, what is land tenure? What does it look like? How do people transition land? Is there anything that was surprising to you as you learned more about that landscape of land and ranching in the West? Yeah, I guess like just back to the complexity of it all. I think that, yeah, we kind of mentioned it earlier, but like it's a whole different ball game. I think especially now being friends with people who are inheriting ranches <laughs> or are a part of a group of five grandkids inheriting ranches. I think that has been something that, you know, there's a lot more that goes on than just, hey, we're going to put the ranch in the trust and you all can participate in it if you want to. And if you don't, that's fine. And I think that the amount of out-of-state buyers coming in is also kind of fascinating when I meet people that own ranches and have no interest in ranching. And I think that's kind of a, a pocket of hope is like, well, if you don't have interest in ranching, at least, you know, find someone who does. Yeah. I think that's been another kind of like, oh, you've never actually, you know, set foot in a ranch, but hopefully you'll, you'll find someone who comes from a, a background of just, you know, hard work and earn her bag and would never be able to spend a lot of money on a ranch, but are willing to, yeah, put their whole life into conserving this land. Right. And you're part of a bigger, we're part of a, there's a bigger picture at play. You know, there's still, there's still a really big picture at play, even with COVID and people buying properties out of town and then real estate prices and, Oh gosh, inflation. And there's just, it's this larger thing than just you want to steward this land. Land in the West is considered, you know, it's in, in a lot of cases, really prime real estate. And there's a lot of context to what has been happening with that land for a long time. And so, yeah, I, I find that so interesting. I feel like. But I think with like people coming from out of state, 
what helped us at Oxbow was like they brought in values about where their food came from that I I always kind of, you know, took for granted being in a rural community, but also didn't try hard enough in a rural community growing up. Like it's it's been really neat to have people be like, no, like how did you raise your cows? Because we sold we sold beef right on the ranch and it was, you know, a pretty well-known name, at least in Missoula area. And so I think that was like fun. Like, oh, you care. You care about how and even people in state, you know, I think this is broad COVID era acknowledging that our food is coming from an animal that's eating grass, hopefully. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so that I think in the last three, however long COVID has been going on, three, four years, um, 10, that has been 10 15. our whole life. <laughs> that's been really like a very neat outcome of interacting one-on-one with people, you know, who are purchasing beef and then my being able to be like, oh yeah, this was number, you know, 506 and I knew her and I watched her being born and I raised her and I hauled her to slaughter and she's back here two weeks later and you're going to eat her. And so I think like that process is something that like people are really starting to value. And that's, I don't think that will go away because once you feel that connection to this animal and to this rancher and to this landscape, you're, you can't really back. I don't think you can backtrack and then go back into a grocery store and be like, well, that was a stressful time during COVID. I'm going to go back and, you know, eat this nameless cow and from, you know, some feedlot in Kansas. So I hope that that is something that is a hundred percent here to stay because that's a, yeah, a a great outcome of COVID. (laughs) Going back to AFT, are there people in each state that are there? So somebody listening to this podcast wanted to plug in, learn more about land tenure, how they can even understand all of their options, where would be the best place for them to go? Yeah, I think American Farmland Trust website has all of us on there. And then within that, I think like universities tend to have experts in this, like the ag extension agencies and um, like a state university is a great kind of jumping off point because they have those even further local connections. So not just statewide, but like who's in your county, who's a mediator, who, you know, is in touch with realty in that area. And so I think that that kind of start broad and then just keep honing in. I think each person in this realm knows three other people who have specific areas of expertise, because a lot of this is legal advice that I, you know, I have friends who are lawyers, but I never... (laughs) have aspired to know that depth of legality. And you need to have that if you're going into this, you know, contract writing or purchasing property or even just figuring out leases. That's such a necessary step and finding the right person who understands land leases in your area, that important kind of like, all right, you probably know an expert. So who is that? So I think AFT is doing a really good job of kind of connecting the connectors. Awesome. So my last question for you, Caroline, is what's next for you? What is on your mind? What are you thinking about? What are you excited about? Yeah. Next is I'm right now, you know, as of yesterday, I will be going to New Zealand again for a Fulbright Award. So I received that for my master's in management of agribusiness, which is exciting because I received it in the start of COVID and (laughs) got delayed over and over and over again. And then was yeah, taken away and then given back and then just delayed. So it's been quite the journey (laughs) for that. So here we are four years later, sounding like, you know, it's definitely happening. So that will be in February and it's just a year. So I think that, you know, it's, it's exciting little chapter of life. And after that year, my heart is kind of in Montana. And so I think I'll, I couldn't imagine living anywhere, but this beautiful state, but then again, you know, we'll see, we'll see what happens. I'm not going to rule anything out or anything in. And like I said earlier, like there's just so many pieces of agriculture and feeding people and taking care of the land. I'm just excited to kind of see where this chapter will take me. Again, there's so much that I just don't know and don't know the questions to even ask. So I'm hoping that this Fulbright will help me at least piece together the questions that will help me find what my values are for my life in 2024 when I get back and yeah, where where I want to go. But right now I know that I love this state and I love this work. Uh, it feels good to kind of have that 
in my heart as I leave the country once again. (laughs) We've talked before about this. I think it's so awesome that you are trying to understand the entire system. Like you're just trying to zoom out and zoom in and zoom out and look at a different angle and turn it around and just try to like from historical perspective and then, you know, not just ignoring the whole, you know, commercial food system, but like mm-hmm. pulling it apart and being like, why, why is yeah. it like that? Yeah. Cause I don't think you can fix, you can't fix things if you don't understand why it works that way or how it's broken. So yeah, I think the Fulbright year will be bigger picture kind of supply chain where things are going. Cause it's, yeah, I did it when I was abroad the first time I only chose places that exported internationally, but I was a very small little cog in this pretty big ranch machines. And then at Oxbow, it was so local and you knew your cow and knew the person buying the beef. And now to go back out and see how these systems are functioning, how this is like macroeconomically working or not working, and then hopefully settling in a sweet spot (laughs) for Mm -hmm. my career within that. Yeah, but it's exciting because I just, um, even if I don't end up using it and go back into ranching or managing, it's something that I'm just genuinely curious because the movement of food and raw materials to become food is kind of the basis of, you know, trade since forever. And so I think it's just, it's, it's so big and daunting to learn, but you know, I feel like part of me is learning it for me because it's something that just fascinates me. And then if a cool job comes of it, I'm like, yeah, that's great. But you know, if nothing, something will be related to it. But even if it, I come back to Montana and, you know, kick it back with Kivira, all of it, my mind, I think will be different and my lens will be different. And I like having those different lenses to see the world. Right. Well, we wish you the best of luck. I am very excited. I'm going to try to wrangle you to, to come back for an interview when, when you come back eventually. <laughs> yeah. Dude, love that. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for all you do at the New Agrarian Program. Thank you, Taylor. This has been fun. If you'd like to keep up with Caroline and her travels, you can follow her on Instagram at caldwell.caroline. And if you'd like to find more about her work at American Farmland Trust, you can go to farmland.org slash transitioning dash land dash trainer dash cohort. Listeners, before we send you on to the job announcements, I'd like to make a special announcement about an in-person event happening here in Colorado. Kibera Coalition has always been a huge supporter of the Society for Range Management Groups, and we'd like to share more about their exciting event they're hosting. It'll be at the CSU Arkansas Valley Research Center in Rocky Ford, Colorado, on October 19th and 20th, 2022. This meeting will highlight the work of the next generation of professionals and producers in continuing the tradition of good range management through innovative practices and techniques. A selection of young professionals and producers will be the featured speakers discussing topics ranging from livestock, range, and water management. They'll also have tours of the Arkansas Valley Research Station and the Colorado State University Veterinary Diagnostic Lab. It'll be a really fun event. We'll have some new agrarian program mentors and apprentices, and I will be there. I'm super excited to see everybody and to get a tour of these facilities. So you can find more information at cssrm.org events. Hello again. Kivira Coalition has spent decades building a network within the regenerative agriculture community, and we love to share job, internship, and apprenticeship opportunities with our community through our podcast and our monthly newsletter. We have two mentor sites in California, Richard's Ranch and CNR Ranch, that are accepting applications. These sites operate on a November 2022 through June 2023 schedule, so submit your applications now. To learn more, check out our website. If you'd like to learn more about the NAP program in preparation for the rest of our applications opening on November 1st, we'll have a NAP 101 Zoom call on October 11, 2022, from 6 to 7.30 Mountain Standard Time. We'll go through the requirements of the program, what sites are hiring, and answer any questions. 
To register or find out more, visit kiviracoalition.org slash events slash NAP-101-OCT-11. Deep Springs College Farm is seeking an experienced farm and mechanics assistant whose areas of expertise should include irrigation systems, haying and farming equipment, and infrastructure maintenance and repair, and should expect to teach students as well. For more information about this position, email staffsearch at deepsprings.edu. Apricot Lane Farms is hiring four apprentice positions. These are six-month paid positions with work ranging from holistic livestock and poultry management to vermicompost and soil fertility. To apply, visit apricotlanefarms.com apprenticeship. Kivira's Regenerate Conference is being hosted in Denver this year at the National Western Center, November 2nd through 4th, 2022. Check out regenerateconference.com for a full lineup of speakers, webinars, social events, and more as we explore the theme, Cultivating Restorative Economies. Every month, we include job postings in our monthly newsletter. Visit kiviracoalition.org to sign up. To view a copy of this month's newsletter or any previous ones, visit kiviracoalition.org slash newagrarian slash resources. Have a job opportunity you want to share yourself? Send it to newagrarian at kiviracoalition.org so we can include it in our next newsletter and podcast. Thank you for listening to Regeneration Rising, a podcast production of the Kivira Coalition. We'd like to thank our guests for taking the time to talk with us about their experiences. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and other popular podcast platforms. Become a Patreon supporter by visiting kaviracoalition.org slash podcasts. We'd also like to thank Kavira staff members, Leah Ritchie, Taryn Dixon, Taylor Mulia, Lynn Whitbeck, and Caroline Caldwell for their contributions to producing this podcast. This episode was edited and engineered by Caleb Wenzel-Fisher. Wanderlust, our theme music, was made by Scott Buckley. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the land.